0: Welcome to everyone who is joined and are joining. You are listening to the 31st episode of Fintech Cafe. Our website, fintechcafe.org lists upcoming episodes. And if you have enjoyed listening about some of the companies, we also have their positions listed that they're hiring for. So please check it out. With that being said, we'll jump into introductions. I will go first, Monisha Chakrapani, host of Fintech Cafe, along with my lovely co-host, Ambika Introductions.
1: Certainly. Thank you, Manisha. So yes, my name is Ambika Sharma. I'm based in San Francisco. I'm also a fintech product manager. I've been in the finance space for about 10 years and counting. And uh, Trisha, over to you, if you could also do your introduction.
2: Of course. Uh, thank you, Ambika and Monisha for having me. At the show, very excited to be talking more about Unit 21 and learning more about our guests and and for the discussion that will follow. I'm Trisha. I'm one of the founders as well as the CEO of Unit 21. Unit 21 is a set of no code tools for risk and compliance operations teams within financial institutions. We have a set of tools for fraud, anti money laundering, and identity operations, and we work with companies in the fintech ecosystem such as Chime, Intuit, Coinbase, as well as some
1: non-fintech companies like Twitter. Lovely. And uh, so, Trisha, Unit 21, as I understand, you guys, as you said, you offer a low-code, no-code solution. Can you tell us what is low-code slash no-code?
2: Yeah. Low-code, no-code is really the product philosophy that Started in many shapes and forms 20 years ago with the original build your own website kind of uh, product offering, but especially has taken off in the last few years. And, and really, the product philosophy is how do you enable somebody who does not have an engineering background, but is a strong business user to do things that have been historically gated by engineering? That is the core value proposition of the no code, no code uh, product philosophy to enable people to do more than um, what they would be able to do historically. And the major benefit that, you know, we we see in this uh, ecosystem is that, is that historically the way that you would be able to do, uh, if you really wanted to customize things, you would need an engineer or you would need professional services. And by enabling the operator to own more of the no-code paradigm and therefore their operations, they're just able to actually
1: get more work done. So you started the company in 2018, just a couple of years ago. Let's go back Mm -hmm. to your early days to do research uh, for this show. I was looking up and I found something that was very interesting and you and your co-founder, Clarence, dubbed it as founder market fit. So generally most of the audience here are, I think, product managers and engineers, given that's, you know, our Ecosystem here of conversation, so I think it's very interesting. We generally talk about product market fit. So, what is a founder market fit?
2: Yeah, the founder market fit is really the market that is right for the for the founder, which includes the background of the founder, the disposition of the founder, and really that enables the founder to be able to carry out there with the goal that the product market fit is, you know the is basically the way that the first product may not always be the scope of all of the products that you will have as a company. And by really focusing on founder market fit and making sure that 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 is in place, you're less tied to a certain product, but really to the evolution of products in the lifetime of your company, which will certainly be more than just a singular product if you're successful.
1: So how did you and Clarence, your co-founder, how did you both meet?
2: So I worked at an online learning company called Oform, and I was uh, fairly early on. There were about 10 engineers when I joined. And through that, I got to build a lot of the original uh, systems of web, the original ledger and a bunch of the original risk-related systems. And that gave me a good sense of what needed to be built. So, Clarence's background is in machine learning and security. He wrote the O'Reilly book on machine learning and is also a lecturer at Berkeley in machine learning. Uh, we met at this space called South Park Commons after we had uh, left both of our companies. And we both had some intuition of the general fraud, anti-money laundering space, given a prior work experience. But we weren't sure whether we, you know, this would necessarily be, whether our intuition was basically correct and this would necessarily be a space that is worthwhile building, uh, building the company in. And that's what South Park Commons was really helpful with in providing us that space to do a lot of exploration. And and there were some really crazy stories that came out of that that gave us a conviction to start a company.
1: Nice. So, what were some of these stories? How did you validate your gut instincts? So, this is the problem statement you both wanted to chase together.
2: Yeah. So we we said, okay, we think there's something in this fraud anti-money laundering space. There's a ton of competition. There's a ton of different companies, but it's still not solved and, and through our, our previous experiences, the fraud operations or the anti-money laundering operations teams were always frustrated. And so this is a classic problem of, you know, tackle the painkillers and other vitamins. So we said, okay, let, let's do some research and validate that this actually is the case. So we reached out to about 300 people with anti-money laundering in their titles on LinkedIn. We incidentally met through that, the head of Anti-Money Laundering at eBay. Uh, We, at the time we had no product, no company or anything. We were just really really brainstorming ideas. And he was very interested in us. He met with us, we told him what we were thinking about building in this space. And he got really excited. So he said, "Um, okay, I'm doing an RFP in three weeks. I'll bump you up to the final demo if uh, you're ready to present something then. So we said, great. We went back to South Park Commons and Googled, what is an RFP? We both were technical founders and never, ever engaged in any kind of sale in the past. And, and through that process, we basically did not sleep for three weeks and just built out the first prototype of the product. We then went down to eBay. I got one of my friends to come so from a firm to come. So it seemed like a 3 person company and not a 2 person company. And, and then we demoed at eBay. And it was a really interesting experience when we were demoing the product to them, which was in a much more rudimentary state than it is today. It was really a prototype. We, people were really, really interested and they told us that we are the front runners. So we asked them that, okay, we have, we have basically no company. We have no funding. We have, we're a two person team. We have no product, no customers. You know, why are you interested in us? And they said that they were looking at a lot of different companies, and you know, the smallest of whom were multi-billion dollar companies. But what was interesting about us was that all of they, they wanted a transaction margin system. And all of the other vendors came to them and said, You want a transaction margin system? I'll give you a transaction margin system. A transaction has six fields: an ID, an amount, a date, et cetera. And we said you a transaction can be anything. So it's really we're calling it transaction monitoring because it's a nomenclature, but it's data monitoring. So you can have a data variable like auction item type. And if the auction item is, let's say, a couch, and the standard couch goes for $800, then if the auction is going for $1,000, that's that's completely in line. But if the auction item type is, let's say, a Pokemon card, and the standard Pokemon card goes for $5, then $1,000 would be anomalous. And what was most striking was that their operations teams, the risk and compliance operations people, they were really interested in pressing for for something like this in their organization because ultimately, they're the ones who are going to get fired or promoted if they do well. But today, for them to be able to even leverage all of their data and write statistical models, they have to be reliant upon their engineering counterparts. Enabling the operations team to own their work was truly democratizing them, giving the, democratizing the capabilities and providing it to them, which, which was something that they really valued. So we heard that a few times. We said, okay, there's something you're, you know, we are able to somehow go head to head with multi-billion dollar companies. This just like random company that just like built out of a hackathon project for three weeks. And, and so we decided to fundraise, so we fundraise in December, 2018. We've been around for three years now. We launched in July, 2019, and it's been really wonderful. And I'm very grateful to have seen the growth uh, because of the FinTech space and the resonance of our value proposition for companies like Chime, Intuit and and many others who, who found the core value proposition truly providing
1: value. Tricia, so you are one of the founders, and every week we have a different founder from a different FinTech company. And I must tell you, I think this was the best founder story we've heard in the last 31 weeks here. <laughs> you <laughs> practically had a three week long hackathon in which not only did you find your problem statement, you created a prototype, you created a, you registered a company, and you found yourself a business lead. That's fantastic.
2: Yeah, it was a crazy time.
1: Okay. I think actually I'm good in terms of all my early morning, early, early, early days questions. So I'll pass it over to Manisha now to ask questions about the space you're in, which is AML product space. So over to you, Manisha.
0: All right. Well, so I know you operate in the AML fraud space. Typically we hear about low code, no code in the, you know, development space, a web or otherwise. So just curious about understanding the Instead sort of the landscape, what what are we thinking about here? What are you thinking about when it comes to AML or fraud?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I mentioned, this is a really competitive space. We're not the first companies who woke up one day and said, "Oh, fraud is a problem. Let's try to solve it." This is a problem that has existed since since you know humans have existed, and and in in the digital world, it's only accelerated in, in the last. So that's it's a very competitive space. But what we saw was there's a lot of different solutions out there and a lot of legacy solutions, which ultimately traditional banks would purchase. And so they would purchase these uh, products and, but then they would want to tweak it and customize it just based on their specific needs. So their specific customer types, their specific use cases, their different products. And in order to do that, they would have to go back to the vendor and say, okay, I'll pay you $100,000. Can you tweak that? And then they would get an Accenture or, or you know, some really large firms just to be able to own their operations and for, for things that they already need. So that was this entire paradigm that existed for really long about, okay, I'm going to buy one of the off-the-shelf vendor products. And then I am going to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in professional services so that I can get it installed. I can get it up and running. I'm going to have a developer that's just focused on maintaining their product, and and that's how I'm going to run my risk and compliance operations. So when the FinTech ecosystem really started, and in in particular, like sort of a 2010, evolving all of these traditional vendor solutions did not make sense because FinTech was just so different. You know, it's not a brick and mortar bank where everything has a very standardized, but I think the products we just fairly standardized, and and you know the types of customers you are selling to is mostly the same. With fintech, every fintech, even even if you're a payments company, it's going to be slightly different based on who is your customer, where, how does it, what types of data are you collecting. And what fintech companies started saying is that okay, all of these off-the-shelf vendors don't really work for us, so we are going to hire an in-house engineering team. And so this really started that whole risk and identity engineer team revolution. And there would be these companies, some of the biggest fintech companies have teams of 40, 50, 60 risk and compliance engineering teams. And they would just be focused on building engineering tools for, for their counterpart, in the operations teams. And ultimately the operations team would still be reliant on the internal engineering team, maybe not on the professional services team, but on the internal engineering team to do whatever they wanted to do. And what we found was that this was the gap in the market is that there is there's a compliance operations or a fraud operations team. They either have two options. You purchase an off-the-shelf vendor, which means you, you don't need to spin up a huge engineering team. And of course, engineers have, are very expensive, very difficult to hire. And also there's a lot of opportunity costs because that engineer is working on an internal tool instead of the core product. And so instead, you know, so for an ops person, they have two options. You either purchase a vendor and then pour hundreds of thousands of dollars in professional services hours, or you try to convince your, your business to do in-house engineering teams. And this was really where we found the gap in the market is that what if you can combine the the benefits of being off the shelf, which is fewer resources to maintain, more agility, more control with, with the benefits that come from, from being built in-house, which is completely customizing to exactly what you want. And, and that's really where we um, decided to play in the space and, and to have an open-ended offering about where, where, how customers should think about owning their operations
0: sure in along those lines, how do we think about use cases? I mean, fraud and AML. Every time I speak to someone in that in the area, there's always an interesting use case. We'd love to kind of see how. What are some of those that you've seen your customers tackle and that Unit Twenty One has enabled? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So one really important component of of monitoring when you know something that people talk a lot about is identity. So if you block the wrong user from entering the platform, then uh, you potentially will have lower fraud. And there's certainly a really big truth to that. But the problem is it's not all encompassing, even if you, because ultimately you only get limited data on the onboarding flow. Um, no company has some secretive data about the KYC workflows when you're onboarding a user that you know, that's completely restricted to them almost all of the KYC data is basically the same. And, and so your ability to onboard 100% non-fraudulent customers is very limited. And fraud actually happens when money is transferred. Fraud actually happens after onboarding, not, not during the onboarding process. And so what we find is that even if companies are onboarding users, there's a lot of fraud that happens post-onboarding in the ongoing monitoring side of things. And what we've really enabled are are the the operations teams we work with is to be able to easily create, test, and deploy logic to flag any kind of suspicious activity in the ongoing monitoring. So they could say something like, okay, if this customer I've seen more than, for example, five IP addresses in an hour, and the customer is only less than a month old, that is really suspicious to me then maybe I should take a look at it, or maybe I should automatically block it. And, and this is where we found the value, is that typically for if w- one of the use cases that is very relevant is that the operations team typically to be able to do this, they, they may not have the necessary technical skills to write SQL queries or complex Python scripts, but they're strong business users. So a lot of this would be done by intuition rather than by actually leveraging analytical, a- analytics in, in the data decision. What we've enabled is that the operator can now easily create tests, deploy these statistical models without having to know how to write code, and without having to ping an engineer that, hey, can you go deploy this model for me? They can completely own the process. And so through that, we have 50% reduction in fraud loss, 80% reduction in false positives, and unlike a lot of companies, we're not saying here, we have this machine learning score, which is a magic wand. You wave the wand and all of your problems go away. What we're saying is you already ha- are hiring your magic, the magic wands, which is like your operations team that is really strong and, and they're, they're strong business users. We will enable them to be significantly more effective so that you, you can really achieve your business outcomes without without putting a burden on um, your engineering teams and by enabling your operations team to upskill themselves so that they're not doing paper pushing work but actually doing more analytical work.
0: So your customers are primarily oh, the users and users are in the operations team, fraud ops.
2: Exactly, so our customers are fraud ops, compliance ops folks. They can easily go and create tasks, deploy statistical models and workflows they can take automated actions on it, or they can have ac- uh, alerts being generated, which they can then report to regulatory agencies if needed, or action on it.
0: And one more question before I transition to Ambika. I know there are a lot of industry coalition around fraud data, right, and identity. Do you also enable other data sources, or is it primarily leveraging the institution's data source?
2: mm mm-hmm. And that's a great question. We have integrations and partnerships with the leading providers of data companies like Silcure from an identity verification perspective, Medesk for a KYB, business verification perspective, and Chainalysis for, um, for, from a uh, blockchain analytics perspective.
1: Could you talk to us about one of your machine learning models and some of the metrics that are driving impact I'm just trying to gauge more of a day-to-day practical application of your platform. So if you could talk about the actual machine learning applications.
2: Yeah, one of our main differentiators is that you can leverage all of your data. So you don't need to be restricted by what, what you know, what the concept of a transaction is, and all oh, this is an transactions, so a wire transaction, but you can really put in any kind of data that you have. And so you can put in whatever data you're collecting, login information, Any kind of data that you're collecting, even if we have no standardized way of consuming it, we can consume any kind of JSON. And that's really the core. It's a data margin platform. So what what our customers are able to do is that they're able to leverage all of their data. So typically, let's say, restaurant payments platform. The standard models I would be able to create in most platforms would be something like flag if um, there is a little uh, flag if this restaurant has more outflows than inflows, or Flag if this restaurant has increased in spike in transactions in the last day, And what we can do is because we can consume any kind of data we're able to the the operations teams can write models which looks at very specific data based on their business model, so they might write something like okay flag if the tip amount is more than eighty percent or you know like one hundred and eighty percent of the the amount of the bill and and if that happens and we've seen you know more than five instances of that, then that is potentially anomalous. And that is a major benefit is that you can leverage all of your data, which means you can be very, very fine-tuned of this is what I consider suspicious or what I don't consider suspicious. And then a big component of the platform is also data labeling. So you can write you can label the businesses or the individuals as potentially fraudulent and then we can consume those labels back. So you can have Different thresholds or different, different things that you want to monitor for people who have been market fraudulent or not. And in this way, you can really tweak the fraud loss rates significantly as well as reduce, reduce the false positive rates because the platform is not just a static rules engine, but it's constantly consuming the data labels that your agents are producing. Through this, we've seen that there's, there's of course, a lot of operational benefits. So we have a customer, Enval, they were able to reduce. Uh, the time to deploy a model from days to an hour. But the major benefit has been that Lilly was able to reduce fraud loss by uh, 50%, was able to reduce $400,000 of fraud loss in the first quarter of using us uh, because they could leverage all of the data. We're not restricted to what the standard data schema that most vendors consume.
1: So would it be correct to say That it's an analytical platform that, for example, let's say I'm a fintech company, I would employ, I would collaborate with unit 21, your product would be an analytical platform that I would plug into, the data would be mine, but your platform would actually furbish metrics analysis for me. And it would also enable me as a fintech company or a fraud strategy specialist to control for the rules I want to control for faster instead of going through engineering. Is that kind of like the right um, example here?
2: Exactly, it's a no code, customizable platform. You can own the statistical modeling, you can own the workflows, you can own the data orchestration on the
1: onboarding and define what makes sense for your company. Okay, so then a follow up question to that is, how does your solution fit in with big banks, which, you know, have been, there's a lot of legacy data. Data is in different formats, doesn't necessarily speak to each other. How does, how's integration for big banks for Unit21?
2: That's a really good question, and, and that's a major benefit is because we don't have a very confined data schema and can consume data from whatever you're interested in sending, it's much easier to be able to consume very different types of data, which you would typically not see with most standard vendors where that would be this huge, super long implementation process that can take years. Uh, with with large financial institutions and what we see with with smaller uh, fintechs and even the larger fintechs at this point is that with well, the smaller fintechs, you know, they may have nothing in place. So we may be the first tool that they're using. But to a point of larger financial institutions, larger fintechs, they already have a bunch of systems. And what we are providing is seeing that where, what part of the platform can we enable, the operations team that does not have currently the capability to do certain things, where can we provide them more value? The platform very modular. You can choose whatever you're interested in. But we don't push and force people to use all of the software. It's really up to people to leverage whatever they, they find that today, wherever the ops team is very reliant upon their data scientists or their edge counterparts to be able to mini data scientists themselves.
1: So we're coming to the end of our moderated session, then we'll open up to the audience. The last question from me to you, Trisha, is around data security. Uh, do you deal with PII, personally identify information such as social security number? And if so, could you talk about how secure are your data marks?
2: Yeah, we do. Uh, this is certainly uh, a really interesting question. We deal with uh, very sensitive data of of individuals and businesses that are there. We have two modes of deployment. We have a standard fast mode, as well as the ability to host it, manage deploy. it deployment through which we can deploy it on, on, on the host instance of, of the company. But data security has been super inter- integral to the company from day zero. Before we had any customers, we had to do software compliance. We had to make sure that we go through penetration tests. We had to make sure that you know, we were three employees, but everyone needed to go through background, background checks. And so there's a lot of different policies in place, not only from a technology perspective, but also from a personnel perspective. Things like making sure that everyone is going through training, and that there are a security training, and there are references on every single employee hired. And we are always hiring for, looking for multiple people for, at least for a single position, so that we can ensure that there is no way that there can be a rogue actor at all in in the personnel or in the technology side of things. We've been very fortunate. Clarence uh, wrote the O'Reilly book on machine learning and security. Security is something that we take very seriously since the company started before we had new customers. We had got software attestation and today privacy confidentiality is very important for us as well. We are uh, compliant with GDPR and CPBA regulations too.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Trisha. So with that, we have reached our end of the moderated session. So now let's move over to the audience. I see that Sean's already up here. Welcome on stage. Could you introduce yourself and ask your question?
3: Yeah, my name is uh, Sean Scott. I'm a product manager at a at a big bank, and I was wondering, Trisha, you know, sort of the 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 idea of no code of a no code tool to extrapolate. Sort of data, you know, bits to get out fraud is, is really interesting. Have you guys thought about sort of other applications in terms of you know, I could think of a, a ton of, from a you know, whether it's figuring out sort of you know your most valuable customers to sort of new segments or sort of or hidden behaviors. Have you guys sort of uh, explored sort of not just fraud but sort of other parts of a, of a fintech? or a big bank that could benefit from, from sort of the, the ease of, of extrapolating sort of, I would say, you know, data from, from, from their own sources?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and that's really a big core of our North Star is that we don't view ourselves as building a fraud and anti-money laundering company. What we are building is a new way for operators to own their work. And and really take control of their world. Today we are, of course, operating primarily in the fraud and AMS space and financial, but where we've seen a lot of resonance already with our existing customers is for a lot of different use cases. There's a really big push in the coming year on new market expansion. One example of to alluding a little bit to what you mentioned about new market segments, what we saw with one of our existing customers when we talked to them is that they said they were using us for sales operations. And that was something that I never really thought of that why would you use as a sales operation? But turns out what they really thought was important was their payments company and a really large payments company in Africa. And um, they wanted to be identified of any, they wanted to be notified of any kind of churn risk or upsell opportunities. So let's say they are selling to a merchant and the merchant were making a million dollars in transaction volume last. Quarter and is now making 100k, then that's potentially a churn opportunity, a churn risk. And if the company was, you know, making a million and now is making five million, that's an upsell opportunity. And today they, they wouldn't just not be notified of such events. They would, they would, you know, maybe their customer success team would have to ask their engineering team, or maybe it would be hidden in some BI dashboards. But they wouldn't be notified if, you know, suddenly one day the customer was not using the platform. There wasn't automated. Allotting to that and specifically, again, giving the ability for uh, the sales operations team to write specific rules for that customer, what is good behavior for the customer and not so good behavior for the customer. And so we've seen some natural expansion for other use cases like sales operations, but we're doing a really big concerted effort over the next year. And you see some exciting news coming up in the next
3: four to six months. Thank you. That, that's, that's awesome. And I, I, you know, and from like a product market field, that's a great, sort of a great story about how sort of, you're, you know, you, you find sort of other use cases based on what your customers are doing, which was not sort of the, maybe the original intended case. So that's, a, that's a great story. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Thank you Sean. And um, Tammy, welcome back.
4: Hey, good evening, everybody. Thank you. Ambika and Monisha. Great session as always, Trisha. So glad to hear from you today. I just want to give you kudos for your Technology Pioneer Award for the World Economic Forum. I also want to include my own congratulations being a woman-founded startup and also backed by some women VC. So congratulations on that. I have just a couple really quick questions. I know we've got a number of people that have questions, but if you can answer a couple of these you know, when I'm looking at your background, Trisha, you have a really interesting background in that you've, you know, been an intern at a number of different companies, and I mean, just the companies that you've you've worked for, very interesting. My my first question: At what point in your life did you know you were gonna you or you wanted to uh, be the CEO of a startup? I mean, were you? A young child saying, "I'm going to go launch my own company," or, or where did that a kernel of inspiration? When did that happen? How did that happen?
2: Thanks, Sammy, for your question. And it, it's certainly incredibly inspiring, and I'm very grateful for everything that has helped me be uh, able to create the company. Um, I, I want to start off by saying that you know it's it, it's not just a takes a village and there are a lot of people who have been involved from from across family, but to mentors. And what I found to be particularly helpful, which I think is not just, which I think is certainly something that I hope more people uh, will be encouraged to think about is just in taking My My father is an entrepreneur, and that is something that I've always seen growing up and and I find this that with, in particular with underrepresented minorities, especially uh, in the entrepreneurship space, especially as CEOs, there are not as many women as CEOs as there really should be. And, and a big reason is that there's a lot of subtle implications that, that this risk is something that is maybe too hard to burden for, for underrepresented minorities. And I'm hopeful that that changes because that's just not the reality. The, um, the, the reality is that if you really want to do something and um, you can validate it with some truth uh, to it, then, then there's a lot of opportunity. And of course, it requires a lot of love. But but if you really want to do something, I, I'm hopeful that we, we really see more underrepresented minorities, uh, start companies and lead companies.
4: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, great. The- Quick question on your false positives. So, I mean, first of all, just the automation and analytics that your platform provides, it, just in the time savings, cost savings for FTE is phenomenal because, you know, AML is a very manually intense process. I know that some of the companies I read were pre-populating their SAR report. I mean, that's that integration is is great. Just a clarification on your false positives companies that rolled out your platform i'm assuming maybe they did side by side trials did did you find that the, uh, using machine learning found trends that the human eye could not easily detect through manual paperwork or or if you can just clarify more on the false positive the reduction in the false positives
2: yeah the the truth is that to your point, a human eye, if I'm just given a list of alerts and I have no way to group things, no way to visualize the data, no way to see what are the potential trends here, then I'm just going to be pushing alerts. I'm just going to be marking them as false positives or true positives. And, and, and that's the, that is the norm in the industry. Our legacy vendors have false positives. 90% is considered low. It's like really 95% plus. And, and the reason is that you have these rules, it's set by somebody, no idea who did it. It was like some professional services group. And uh, these rules are very simplistic rules that are not leveraging all of your data. And then they generate alerts. And then the alerts, you have like teams of hundreds, maybe thousands of people, which is uh, basically... Yeah, w- what we to be really effective is in providing the ability to A, leverage all of the data that the company has. B, leverage data points that previous analysts have marked, so for example, if I previously marked uh, a user as a false positive or a user as a true positive, and leveraging that data point. And, and the third is being able to test things very easily and without having to pull in an engineer or a data scientist or um, a professional services vendor team. And, and that has given people significant ability to reduce false positives, is that they can understand that, okay, your is a trend, and if I modify this particular parameter or if I use this new uh, additional data variable, or if I only look at users who are previously marked as POD, then these are the other trends that emerge. And that analytics component is to be able to monitor that data more effectively has been the biggest reduction factor and false positives.
4: Okay, good. Great. Thank you for that. One last quick uh, question for you. Uh, by the way, I am in financial services. I work for a large bank and focus on third party risk and innovation and merging tech. I read the Lily study case that was out there, and it was a positive to to see that they've been able to upskill their entire fraud team now that they have less on you know less manual processing, etc. Has um, Unit Twenty One? Do you have an active like a customer best practice forum for all users of your platform to share lessons learned because this is such a, a huge, huge problem in the industry. And, and do you have a collaboration like that going on right now or, or is there a potential to have a collaboration like that?
2: Mm-hmm. We do actually have a collaboration and it's in multiple ways as, a lot in the onboarding that we provide in terms of best practices across customers that we're seeing, we actually provide that in the product. So you can see popular templates, popular statistical models used for customers uh, that are similar to you. And, and then we also have a community forum that you can post questions to talk about different ideas. We also have another very exciting project up in the, uh, coming up next year that uh, we'll be making an announcement uh,
4: shortly. Great. Oh, well, congratulations and keep up the great work. And this is Tammy Fleming and I'm done speaking. Thank you. Thank,
1: thank you, Tammy. Thanks, Tammy. And Keithy. welcome back. If you'd like to also introduce yourself and ask your question.
5: Sure, thank you, Ambika and Monisha. Hi everyone, I'm Kirti. I'm a, also a financial services professional and uh, i've worked in big banks validating credit and these transaction monitoring models so first of all trisha congratulations very inspiring to hear your story and your product is great uh, low code and low code and there's a lot of pain points in transaction monitoring building those models validating those models and you're doing a great job so my question to you is this whole concept of no-code, low-code models, that can be applied general, more on a general basis to other models within the banking sector and to a more specific models as well. Like within transaction monitoring, there would be AML, OFAC sanction, trade finance, uh, merchant monitoring, and a bunch of uh, regulatory compliance. Also, compliance may vary between industries and all that. Banking, insurance, and different. So, where do you think or choose your sweet point is, this is the properties I provide in my code, so I will maximize the customers, and this is the customizations the end users or the different industries will do. How do you go about
2: that? That's a really good question because a lot of people often
5: ask us, hey, can you sell to
2: e-commerce? And the truth is that e-commerce, for the e-commerce fraud, there are a lot of really good players. But in e-commerce, you don't really need a high degree of customizability. Why? The, the two reasons. One is that there's one main fraud vector, which is charged stolen credit card, basically. And, and that's at this point, not a fully solved problem, but it's, fairly, it's a fairly standardized problem. And the second is that, which is more, more poignant here, is that in e-commerce, no matter whether you buy a laptop at Best Buy or whether you buy a coat at Macy's, when you log in to your bank account and you look at your statement, then you're going to see the same data schema. There's going to be a memo, there's going to be an amount, there will be a date, there will be a status. It's not that, you know, for every single, every single e-commerce company is going to be collecting vastly different types of data. And because of that, e-commerce fraud is mostly a problem where you don't really need that high of a degree of customizability. Where we play, when, where I think no code is really most important is where you actually need to customize it for your needs, which is why you would need to have historically, you would have to write code because what you are doing is not like a one-time thing. It's going to be constantly evolving, which, you know, fraud and anti-money laundering is a game of whack-a-mole. And so the logic is going to be continuously changing. It's it's like the data schema is different from company to company. And the person who is supposed to be maintaining this changing logic is not intact. And those are the areas that we are able to be very effective at. If, if the data is exactly the same from company to company, so whether Macy's or Best Buy, you're gonna get, we're gonna get the same data, then then we actually don't, then I think the NERCLE paradigm really does fall short. It's more when your operations are gonna be slightly different than your competitor or than any other player in the space.
5: Thank you, that's uh, very helpful. And then within the AML segment, then do you think you need to drill down to and have more customizable products like uh, trade finance and uh, merchant monitoring or those type, or uh, you think that the generalization at at the AML level is sufficient, or or customers and clients uh, come back to you and they discuss with you what customizations they need?
2: Yeah. From a fraud and AML perspective in the financial services industry, we've seen Really strong benefits of the customizability and it's very generalizable. So, people use us for a variety of use cases. There are remittance companies like World Remit who use us, banks like Chime who use us, business banks like Mercury who use us, crypto companies like Coinbase and Crypto.com who use us, and for a vast variety of different use cases. Of course, traditional fraud, account takeover, anti money laundering, but also things like NFT monitoring, which You know, there's no traditional solution for NFTs because it's such a new concept in the first place. But because a product is so customizable, if you want to write an NFT model, you can easily do that.
5: Thank you so much. That's all the questions I had. Thank you. you. And once again, congratulations. (laughs) Thanks. Just a quick
0: question related. Are companies seeing your product as a differentiator where they can get better about aml and kyc and use that as a competitive advantage or are they looking at it as a replacement of you know broken ways of doing things
2: so it often starts off with the latter it's more that hey i'm using google Sheets, fecal query or i'm using this vendor that i can't really you know have control that much over and so they use it for reducing the operational inefficiencies and being able to give their teams better tools. The the way that we've seen it expand is of course it starts off with like, hey, we can reduce fraud by giving you better tools uh, and more no code capabilities. We can reduce false positives from an AML perspective. But we found companies being able to actually leverage it as a competitive advantage because if they want to now start a new product, they don't need to spin up another vendor or they don't need to spin up another set of to be able to to be able to to create a new product or if they want to go international in a new jurisdiction, they don't need to modify anything. Everything's with the platform really easily customizable, which means that they can actually move on their product development efforts very quickly because the risk and compliance teams can move very fast. And often from a risk and compliance perspective, the teams are more averse to uh, new product development or new jurisdictions just because the, the tooling historically has not. Been able to offer them the agility for for that, but but today that's one of the biggest benefits that people really like about the platform is, okay, I want to add a new product line, I can easily do that within you know 21 and I don't need to modify anything.
6: That's fantastic.
0: Thank
2: you. Sorry,
0: good Hey
6: Trisha, this is actually pretty great. I in my past life I, I worked as a, as you were saying engineer. I've seen these big solutions for fraud AML which as you said right really expensive but my kind of question kind of goes back is how do you for you know the hypothesis of, of having the business user actually write some of these rules and how, it just out of curiosity do how do we how do you have them validated I've seen it in the past in some of these type of solutions where for example fraud they, they write a bad rule or something. And I'm just curious mm-hmm. in, in the other side of the thing, right? Now you give the the keys, you know, make it low code, no code. But then with that is kind of a responsibility. How do you, I'm just curious—is if you ever run into, you know, what what is it so that that the the customer actually knows that the things they put in are actually working how they expect it?
2: Yeah, and the, my my co-founder Clarence has a great story on it where he worked at this company called Shape Security, and and there was, he wrote a rule to block bots and it took down a significant percentage of one of their largest customers because the rule was the, the incorrect rule. And so we, through our experience and through a lot of battle scars, we've learned a lot about what it is important to put in to make sure we have a different guardrail in place. So, there are capabilities like, of course, permissioning that only certain types of people or certain users can write rules, or the ability to require certain users that even if they can write a rule to deploy it, they need, they need approval. But most importantly, is the ability to test rules about deploying. So, it's not that you just write a rule, you imagine a rule, and you come in and you say, OK, I'm going to write this rule. And suddenly you had you were investigating 100 alerts a day and now it's flooding to your system with 50,000. But by giving you the capabilities of testing things, looking at, okay, if I'd done this over historical data or in shadow mode with essentially running an A-B test, then what would this have done? This gives people more control to actually make an educated decision about it instead of a guess framework, which we see with a lot of fintechs. A lot of it is like, hmm, I think, I think this looks good for, for my customer base. And, and, you know, that, that isn't really a data-driven decision. And so that's our, our goal is to enable more data-driven decisions and, of course, put different guardrails in place so that it's not that people can just go completely crazy and take down the entire system, but they actually can do better work because they can leverage analytics more in their
6: decision. That's awesome. I, as, as somebody who sat through some rule that actually took down our, a system, I really appreciate that. Uh, had very similar stories and, and exactly that same scenario. But thanks.
2: Thanks, Gupta. It's, it's a great question.
1: Thank you, Guptan. So we have now a few questions from the back channel. First one we have from Jeff, he works at SoFi, and he asks, with data localization regulations becoming more and more common, does Unit 21 allow customers to choose where their data is stored geographically?
2: Mm-hmm. So today we have a significant percentage of our customers are international. We have customers in Africa like Flutterwave, customers in Europe like World Remit, customers in Asia like Line, and of course a lot of customers in in North America companies like BitSo in Mexico, Welsh Simple in Canada. Data localization is extremely important and d- depending upon different regulations. With the EU, we see the most stringent requirements. And so we have uh, different AWS instances based on what we are seeing. And, and this is something that we very closely monitor. Data security and data compliance is extremely important to the company. And we take our, the, really the privilege that we have of being able to consume this data very seriously as a company.
1: Okay. Thank you. And then the second question, this one's from James, and he works at Figure Technologies. And he's asked he has a two-part question first is what are some of the complications and pitfalls that you've run into when creating and designing a no code framework
2: that's a great question the biggest complication is in the biggest benefit which is people can do anything and when people can do anything that's a lot of freedom for people and so people may think for and, and the biggest Problem is really that can can our customers understand what their own data is doing? So the, the what, what the reason that's an interesting challenge is that let's say I'm the fraud operations team of a company, and I think my data is modeled in a particular way, and and you're trying to getting my data, and I'm making assumptions based on what I think my data modeling is. So for example, I might have a received amount and a sent amount and an amount data Three data fields. And I might think that, okay, the amount is the one that I should look at, but actually I should be looking at the received amount and the sent amount of data field. And, and if I'm not aware of that, I'm making decisions about, about what I should deploy or what I should not deploy. And, and that's one of the biggest issues about NoCode is that by giving the freedom and responsibility to people, you, they, they really have to develop a very strong understanding of exactly what data they are sending over and what data they have and what the data. So that is a pretty interesting complexity, which just wasn't there with previous systems because the data schema was very confined. And so what you, know, what you could send over was very limited. The, the types of fields that most vendors would consume were, were basically they would have you know, different data schemas or it was an ACH transaction and it you was know, a wire transaction and we can only consume ACH and wire, we can't consume card or, or things like that. But if you tell a consumer that, okay, I can, you can give me any kind of data, that it's really important that they understand the data. And so this is less of a problem of no code, low code, but it's more of a problem of, okay, we are giving people something that they've just never had to do before, which is to truly understand their data schema and how they, what the data represented means. And, and there is a bit of a learning curve on that.
1: Perfect. So his follow-up question is actually where you ended, and that is, what what's the ramp-up time for a customer to become comfortable with your platform?
2: That's a good question. It does depend a lot on the technical, or less so. it actually depends very little on the technical aptitude and more on the eagerness to learn. We find that customers who like to tinker, customers who like to play, who like to test things, who have that analytics mindset, are able to get up and running the platform in a in a day it's very quick they immediately can get it for customers that are very used to you know the standard way of doing things that is a professional services component where you'll have uh, you know weekly meetings with vendors um and not to say that we don't do that we do all of that but like it's where when they have just never had to own their operations their that mindset shift is the biggest change so it, it really varies a lot. What I found to be very encouraging and promising is that once the mindset is that, okay, I actually want to own this and I want to be responsible for whether I should get promoted or fired, then, then it's incredibly easy. And and the biggest, biggest component is really the mindset shift.
1: Thank you. And I do have one last question. Sorry, it came from a, ch- a chat channel that's going on. And that question is, If I were a big bank and if I were to integrate with uh, Unit 21, how structured does my data have to be?
2: So we can consume any kind of data, but we do need it to be fairly structured. We are doing a lot of work on consuming non-structured data as well, things like images or things like videos. Uh, We power Twitter's blue checkmark verification. So all of that is going through us today. And and that's really open us up to a lot of different use cases. But the usual customer sends us data that is structured but completely non sanitized in terms of schema. As long as it's a JSON formatted data blob, we can create it. All
0: right. I think with that we're right at eight. Trisha, thank you so much. Uh this was invaluable to hear all about. No code. We had a pretty active discussion. Thank you to our uh, audience that participated and joined us this evening. Very inspiring Jisha to definitely a lot of firsts for you, engineer, founder, one founder. So thank you for taking this time and good luck in everything. We'll be watching for that exciting news. That's going to come up soon. And then just for the audience next week, we'll be back with the founder of first Boulevard. So please tune in when we are back next week. And that would be
2: Azia Bradley, who would be joining us. Uh, with that, Trisha,
0: any final thoughts or comments?
2: Thank you so much, Ambika and Monisha, for having me. And, and thank you to Sean, Tammy, Kiriti, Guptan, and and the rest for uh, all of your really interesting questions. I'm really, really excited to be uh, building something in the space that's, that's an amazing energy in, in the financial services and fintech ecosystem. And excited to, to see where, where this goes with all
1: of you. Thank you so much. Ambika. Yeah, thank you, Trisha, for joining. We just contacted Trisha last week and she agreed very quickly. So thank you so much for a quick turnaround, Trisha. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. And that's a wrap for today. Have a good evening. <laughs> thank you.